Hi, I'm Bonnie Morales from Koshka Restaurant, and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We then talk to the producer of that ingredient. We learn about its history, how it's made, and why chefs love using that ingredient in their kitchen. Portlandia, Andrea. Here we are in Portland, Oregon. Love it here, John. One of your favorite towns. What do you love about Portland again? Tell me. I know you've told me before. Before, but I mean, I love it. I love the food scene. I love how unapologetically themselves they are. Yes. I love the Japanese gardens here. Yes. I love the huge rose garden that's absolutely stunning that you can just walk through. Uh I love the kind of city um, nature vibe that they have going on. Yes, you're very cultured. I come to Portland and I just like eat. No, I like to go and see the things. Yeah, no, I'm hearing that. Yeah. I have taken a hike in the woods here, the impassable wilderness. It is beautiful. Yeah, Portland is such a great city. It's got such a diverse food community like... It has a lot of different cultural food experiences. Like yeah. it's not unusual to find like very specific um, African type cuisine. Um, Vietnamese. Vietnamese, all the Asian type foods are well represented here. And then you've got great pizza. Absolutely. When I was here five years ago for the first time, I had traveled on a chef's warehouse trip and made a very good friend, one of our most amazing sales reps, Brooke Crandell. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want you to show me your Portland. Mm-hmm. I want you to take me to your favorite restaurant. I don't care where we're going. And she said, we have to go to Kachka. Bonnie Morales's Kachka? Bonnie Morales's Kachka. Talk and to me. So I was like, sounds great. And I go online on my phone. I'm looking up the menu and I'm like, wow, this is, this is kind of, this is Russian food. Yeah. I was not expecting that. You know, we, we go, we sit down, and we had the most incredible meal. Did you drink vodka? Oh, not only did I drink vodka, I did a vodka flight. Ooh. So you can have different kinds. They're also infusing vodkas with horseradish, which goes, you know, amazing with caviar. And I just love vodka, so da. it was amazing. It was so now good. I'm speaking Russian with you, da. My favorite part of the meal was the pelmini and the veraniki, which are... I'm going to put them in the pierogi family, mm-hmm. but like kind of small dumplings, either filled with meat or a potato kind of sour cream mixture. They were the best. Amazing. So Bonnie Morales at Kachka, this place you're talking about, mm-hmm. she's very celebrated. Like oh, she's yeah. a big deal in Portland. And it's interesting. She wants to talk about charcoal. Yeah. I, when you when like she said really that, what did you wood think? Charcoal. I thought that was really cool because yeah. I was like, it's not just something, you know, most people, when you say what ingredient do you want to talk about, they name a food. Right. But an ingredient that's very important to her cooking is not just charcoal, but thon charcoal, mm-hmm. which is this Thai inspired hardwood charcoal. So mm-hmm. little logs yep. that burn at a very high temperature and they really do make a tremendous difference when you're cooking any even kind of cooking. protein or vegetable for that matter. Yeah, it pr- kind of provides a, an even cooking field. You lay out these briquettes or logs. Yeah. And again, they don't have a lot of soot or, or give off a lot of um, waste. Sometimes it can be very messy yes. handling charcoal. And this product does an incredible job with that. Yeah. I have charcoal envy. I, I have a gas grill at home. Mm. You know, it's a beautiful number from Weber and it, yeah. it's very convenient. Only some people are judging you. Yeah, no. I, listen, I'm judging myself because it's, but it, you got to weigh the convenience sure. factor versus the starting a wood fire. Because listen, I can go, you know, I can show up home eight o'clock at night, go outside, right. hit a button, and, you know, within a couple of minutes, I've got a 500 degree, 600 yeah. degree, you know, grill going. Charcoal is a process. Gas fire. Charcoal is a process, but I will say that it is worth its weight in gold to use hardwood charcoal because there is an element of flavor that is imparted by the wood that is incomparable. And there's a level of temperature that you can attain with these hardwood charcoals that goes way higher than most gas grills will ever go. So you get that really nice char? Yeah, well, yeah, you can, you can just get great high temperature to yeah, to sear meats and char, create crusts and things like that, which you can do on a gas grill. But then also when the fat from the, the protein, again, I'm talking about grilling meats, when that hits the charcoal and the little bit of smoke comes up, it does impart a flavor that cannot, in my opinion, be duplicated 100%. by gas. Yeah. When she said charcoal, the first thing I thought was like open fire cooking yeah. and how 
you know, it's something that that's how we kind of started, right, in, in this world is, you know, cooking over open flame. And so I was really excited to have this conversation and, you know, really excited to talk with uh, Toby Roberts from Fan Charcoal yep. to learn kind of how did this come to be and why is this important to the culinary industry and, and to him? Yeah, more and more restaurants today yeah. are using these type of hardwood charcoals for their grilling indoors. And so this is going to be a great conversation. Cannot we speak with Bonnie and the folks at Fan Charcoal? This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios. We have been doing an amazing West Coast tour. Andrew Mm -hmm. and I are both New Yorkers, but we have been recording. We were in California all of last week. Great chefs, amazing legends. And now we're in Portland with another Portland legend. Mm -hmm. Bonnie Morales. Hi. Kochka Restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, usually we warm up and say, how do we pronounce your name? But it's no, Bonnie, Bonnie Morales, Morales at Kochka. Brooke Crandell, uh, one of our amazing sales reps a few years ago, I was visiting her and I only had one night and I said, take me where you think we should go. And she took me here and I absolutely fell in love with just, I mean, the space is beautiful. The food, it's so comforting and it reminded me, I mean, just home and comfort. So... I knew when we decided we were doing this West Coast tour, I called her first and I'm like, I really want to talk to Bonnie. And it's Russian oh. food from Bonnie Morales, but it's not a very Russian name. <laughs> so, I mean, I want to do want to correct you. It's not Russian food. My parents immigrated from the Soviet Union. Um, mm-hmm. And so Russia didn't really exist in the same way. And the place, the physical geographic place they came from, Belarus, didn't exist at all. So we're not Belarus, not, Belarus, not Russian. My family's passports had Jewish stamped on it. So it's a whole complicated thing. Anytime we start talking about what the restaurant is, we're, people call us Russian, but we actually call ourselves post-Soviet. Post-Soviet. Um, yeah. Which is hard for folks to wrap their brains around, but um, it's it's a real thing. I love um, it. And you've got a picture of uh, Gorbachev. Yeah, yeah Gorby. <laughs> I don't know whether to call him Vladimir Gorbachev or Gorby, who just passed away last week, sadly. He did. Most of our um, staff have no idea who that is. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I'm old, so I know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how the restaurant came to be. It's my husband's fault. We were, um, when we were dating, we were both restaurant folks. We met in restaurants. All we do is talk about food. Um, and so when we first started dating, obviously you have to take your boyfriend home to your parents, right? Um, and, but for me, that was always came with a disclaimer uh, for friends and significant others of you might want to eat first. You might not like the food very much. It might be a little weird. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so I gave him that disclaimer. But afterwards, we were in the still in the parking or in the uh, driveway of my parents' house. And he was just like, Bonnie, that was amazing. I have no idea what most of that was, but I need to do that again. Oh, a keeper. Um, I know. <laughs> and I was like, my mom's not even here. So he can't even, it's not even him like buttering her right. up. Um, so, and I mean, he just, he loved it. And it made me fall in love with it. Um, I was always really embarrassed, obviously, of, you know, being an immigrant's kid of the food at home. And all I wanted was stovetop stuffing um, and nothing to do with herring or boiled beef tongue or any of those things. And um, he but through his eyes, I sort of noticed or realized that, you know, it was really just me having um, some insecurities around it. And that if I took that away and just took it at face value that this food was incredible. And um, I felt like invigorated to do something about that. And that we kind of together felt like we had to share that with other people because um, honestly, the food has a bit of a PR problem. Um, and so it really wasn't getting a lot of representation. Surely um, in this country it continues to have an issue to this day, largely due to political issues. Um, so yeah, that's our mission I, is to... I- Cooked yeah. delicious food for people. I was, you know, I was thinking on the way in here as I was thinking about the cuisine. Even in New York, you know, a great restaurant city. Yes, you can go to Brighton Beach and you can go to these neighborhoods where there's a, you know, a, a Russian population or uh, Eastern European population. But in New York, there was one restaurant called the Russian Tea Room, which wasn't a Russian restaurant. I mean, it was a place people went for caviar and vodka and champagne, maybe, and certain touches, if you will, mm-hmm. of what. American people think is that type of cuisine. Yeah. Um, 
So it's looking at your menu here is really beautiful, like homespun almost kind of dishes. Well, yeah, the the thing is that Russian tea room, um, I think, was born of what a Russian emigre thought Americans would want to eat and also what a Russian person would eat out at a restaurant. Um, and so if you it, back when Russian Tea Room opened decades ago, a Russian eating in Moscow at a restaurant, which was, by the way, a very rare occurrence in that time period, would have eaten more continental dishes. Mm-hmm. And so it is what they thought was appropriate for a restaurant. Um, and what, you know, cabbage rolls are what you have at home. That's peasant food. Why mm-hmm. would why would I eat that? And why would I go to a restaurant to eat that? In fact, people who are from that part of the world often will come here and be like, they'll order anything but the golubtse, the cabbage rolls, because they're like, well, that's my mom makes that at home. Why yours can't possibly be worth eating out for? Um, but it's to me those very same dishes that are the ones that will bring diners to tears because it evokes memories of lost loved ones or a distant past. Um, and so those are the moments that we actually love the most. I love that. Yeah. I have so many questions now. Okay, we haven't even talked about what the ingredient is. Well, wait, I didn't want to go there yet. We're not okay. even going to tell? No, we're going to talk okay. about charcoal, right? We're going to talk about charcoal, a specific kind of charcoal, though. Yes. Right? Yes. Now you can go on. Ask your questions. Because there's not a large number. I mean, where do you learn to do this? Can you? Did you grow up in Portland? No, I'm uh, the Chicago suburbs. Okay, so you're in Chicago. But did you have a food background? Like, you're, you and your boyfriend are in the driveway. <laughs> And then in two four, 2014, you open a restaurant. Like, what happened between that driveway conversation <laughs> right. you can't, and the restaurant opening? There's not like, you know, New York City, there's the French Culinary Academy right. or there's the CIA where they're teaching, you know, these European <sighs> techniques and stuff like that. Where do yeah. you learn Russian? You don't. Or, that, I mean, am I saying Russian? Am I yeah, right I, to we, say Russian? Post-Soviet. So Post-Soviet I, food. I talk. I I always say at the beginning of a conversation that you should just put an asterisk on the word Russian because it, yeah. it does mean a bigger bigger world in a way um and so i i just want to know when i say russian i mean the basically the former soviet union in the in the context of kachka that's that's yeah and i think most people do but it's important to recognize that absolutely i'm born in that era so that you say me russia it's the whole that whole huge basically continent time stopped when my parents immigrated for our understanding of that part of the world because when they left it was a much bigger place and so when i think about it it's in the culinarily it's in the context of a bigger geographic region Uh, anyway what were we saying i'm politically oh where do you even learn how to cook that kind of food Mm -hmm. you know um i went i went to the caa um a long time ago and um (laughs) that's actually a big frustration is that it is very centric uh french centric um Forget about even Asian techniques or other really large, well-known um, modes uh, in cooking. Um, they don't even. Yeah, they, it's it's French centric, and I think they're they're moving away from that a little bit these days. Um, but it did. It made me think when when I first got out of culinary school, I thought I could fix the food I grew up eating. I, I remember this one instance when I was visiting my parents. And there's a dish in Russia called khaladets, um, which is basically um, like meat aspic. Um, and you just take uh, calves' feet and shanks and things like that, cook them down in for a long time in water. And then um, you pick the meat and the, the gelatin and stuff, chop it up really finely, put it in a tureen, pour the liquid over it with a bunch of garlic and let it set. Um, and it's very, very rustic. And it's essentially meat jello. Um, and I thought, oh, I know I can fix it. I'm going to turn this into this like insane consomme based aspect terrine. I'm going to like clarify it, put a bunch of inlay in it. It was like gorgeous. Right. And I started, we had a big family party, um, while I was there and I made this, my version, my like Frenchified version. Um, and I just remember looking around the table and like seeing all of my aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff kind of like sort of silently eating it and nodding and probably thinking to themselves like how much are they paying for her to go to culinary school what is this this is terrible because it might have been technically correct in some sort of formalized french way but it had lost all of its soul and flavor and spirit in in doing that and that but that was at the time what i thought the food that i grew up eating needed was to be frenchified and that would fix it 
And it wasn't until later when I was, when Israel and I were dating and I was realizing like, oh, there was something, it was me. I needed to be fixed. Like there was something wrong with the food. Just like cook it the way it's supposed to be made, season it properly, use proper ingredients, but you know, it doesn't have to be fixed, Mm -hmm. you know? So these are recipes that you've learned from your grandparents, from your, from your parents. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's what makes this restaurant so special. It is, it's home cooking. Yeah, it, I, you know, there's a mix of things going on here. Sometimes there's a way, a technique that we might use that is picked up from somewhere else um, as an inspiration point here and there. But in no way is it meant to, like, fix something that was broken. It's more about applying my lens and the way I think about food than it is about trying to correct something that was done incorrectly. And just focusing on a quality raw material and the ingredients which really will help elevate. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So why did you want to talk about charcoal? <laughs> <laughs> so many reasons. Um, well, so in in the larger culinary world that is Russia, um, there's a whole grilling cuisine um, that comes from the Caucasus and Central Asia. Um, they use a grilling box called a mangal, um, which is basically a narrow, skinny opening um, for skewer cookery. Um, and this is huge all throughout the region. Um, so much so that like I, my dad talks about one New Year's, New Year's Eve is like the biggest holiday um, in the former Soviet world because they got rid of Christmas for religious reasons. And so they kind of like turned New Year's into Christmas. So it was like this huge, massive holiday. Anyway, so like you, so like your absolute favorite, most like exciting things. And um, shashlik, which is a skewer cooking is like, was has always been so popular and so important that even you know, on New Year's Eve, they wanted to like grill and my, but it's also like really cold there, as you know. Um, so it was like the coldest winter on record that my dad remembers. And he describes being out on their tiny little balcony in their apartment in Minsk and grilling skewers on a Mongol. And it was so cold that on one side, the, the cold, the upside, um, the skewers were freezing over as Aye. the other side was cooking. But it was like so important to like that's it's so central to them. But anyway, um, so obviously, as I just described, we had to have shashlik on our menu right. in in some fashion. Um, in our in our original space, not this one. Um, it was tiny, tiny, tiny space, tiny kitchen, um, and we decided, okay, in the summertime. We will take one of these Mongol grilling boxes and put it up on top of our range, like replace two of our eyes with this and just cook on top of it. Um, you may not know this if you don't know anything about building codes and fire codes, but you can't grill charcoal in a reg- like uh, in a mixed hood. You, you have, it has to have its own separate hood, at least in Portland. Um, and so we, what we were doing was incredibly illegal and highly dangerous. However... I knew that grilling with um, a binchatan style charcoal um, would keep our hood cleaner, which would make it a lot uh, less likely that we would end up burning the place down, which you don't want to do in your first few years. You don't want to do that ever. Um, and so we were totally illegally grilling on top of our range using binchatan because we felt like we could do it. And binchatan is uh, really hard to come by, really expensive. Um, except that Andy Ricker, who's here in Portland, was here in Portland, um, had just started selling this Rambutan-based Binchatan charcoal um, that he had started using for Pock Pock. And it was just so fortunate that he happened to be producing it right when we had started because we we opened using that and it was a lifesaver, but it's also an amazing material. It burns forever. Um, it's super consistent. It's just, it's like the perfect charcoal. Um, so I, I can't live at this point. There was like a, during the pandemic, so many things, uh, had issues. There was a moment where we were not going to be able to get charcoal and it was like panic moment. We're like, what are we going to do without this ton charcoal? It like, it's like the one ingredient that like we would stop everything for. So I'm rambling. I don't know. No, this is amazing. Yes, exactly what we want to know. I mean, I get, there's a lot of lessons here. First is if you're a young chef and you can't get a license for wood burning, uh, go ahead and use this because it's clean and smokeless. <laughs> I did not tell you to do that. <laughs> um, I love the part. What's what's the preferred meat that they were using in mince back then? Was it is it a beef? Is beef it, or yeah, lamb? Beef or lamb? Lamb. Yep. Yeah. 
we were talking about on the way here. We didn't, I don't, I didn't know that grilling was so important. No, to, I had no idea. At, we were, you know, kind of joking, but not joking. I'm like, it's freezing there. Like, are they doing a lot of grilling? Um, but <laughs> you make uh, it work. And yeah. then I was worried that uh, Bonnie was going to tell us that to make it really authentic, they were going in the walk-in freezer with the... <laughs> What's interesting about the former Soviet Union is that there's a lot of cross-pollination across basically, uh, what was it, a fifth of the world landmass when it was in its full size. So um, you have, you know, a lot of interaction with, let's say, my dad... the. The, the story that it made me think of was my dad was on a bus with a bunch of folk. It was like a work trip or something. And there was somebody from Azerbaijan on their in their crew. And so they were I don't know where they were driving, but basically they they had the bus driver stop the bus to get some meat. And they got a trash bag and like what marinated this meat on the bus. And when they got to their final destination, this Azeri dude like started a Mongo, like built a Mongol out of rocks or whatever, like in the middle of the forest. And they like had an impromptu barbecue. And that was like my dad's like first exposure to like this kind of cookery. Um, and so then he obviously took that back and he did his own stuff in our family, but that's what that happened all across the former Soviet Union. So that's how you get places that are traditionally quite cold, um, having more of this barbecue style cookery that you wouldn't have expected. It wouldn't make sense geographically. That's how that happened. So have, it is weird, and that, but it, but it totally makes sense uh, when you know the history yeah. and the culture. Have you gone over there to see how you know restaurants and traditional food is being made firsthand? Absolutely. We we try to we make a goal of going at least once every two years to somewhere um, thereabouts. Um, and this last year, we actually got to go to Uzbekistan with some of our management, which was really, really amazing and fun and um, learned all sorts of a new new thing was um, uh, there's a, a sport called buskashi, which is very popular in Central Asia. Um, and you, it's sometimes people call it goat polo or lamb polo. Um, and it's because it's a bunch of dudes on horseback with Basically, they use a goat as like a ball, but which sounds really grotesque, but it's not. It's actually um, a very beautiful process because they, um, in sort of running around, dragging around, kicking around this goat, they tenderize it. And then the winner of the Buskashi match takes it home and barbecues it. Okay, it's not a live goat. Oh, no, no, no. Okay. no I was Sorry. picturing a live it's goat. Been, it was, and actually, they, they raise these goats for the sport specifically. It has to be like the best, like the most well taken care of, most yeah. beautiful goat. And then this is like its royal treatment, essentially. It like gets like honored in this way. And then um, somebody, somebody, the winner gets to take it home and eat every last bit of it. And it's been tenderized in the act of the sport. So at first, when you think about it, you're like, oh my God, how horrifying. But it's actually quite a beautiful process and creates a really delicious dish. That's cool. I think this region of the world, too, like, you know, I have a friend who's a wine writer and she's deeply immersed in like wines from Georgia. This mm -hmm. is kind of like the origin of wine is that part of the world. Yeah. And the origin, which, you know, and I, whenever we think of wine and food together, like the, the, there's deep history in the food of that region. Absolutely. And I'm sure that you, you know, it's something that you often are looking at and learning. Yeah, actually. Um, so Georgia, um, very proud Armenians will actually tell you that Armenia is the birthplace of wine now right. because they found a Rennie one cave uh, to have even older um, source information to say there was wine making there and so they they talk about between georgia and armenia they're like no we were first no we were first yeah. but either way very much ingrained in that part of the world and has have really really deep food and wine traditions that are amazing and delicious shifting a little bit but the horseradish vodka <laughs> that they make here is spectacular like that's like the thing that i'm thinking about and now you're are you selling it now? We are. We, we're working with um, Martin Ryan Distilling, which makes Aria Gin here in town. They're just across the river. Um, they um, they produce our horseradish vodka on our on our behalf because um, they know what they're doing. And um, a bottle for us available in Oregon right now. We are working on getting um, to a few other states. That hopefully sounds so by the good holidays. with like smoked salmon or salmon or. Caviar. Dare I say caviar? Oh, absolutely with caviar. You know, people always talk about sparkling wine, champagne being the like perfect caviar pairing. It's not. It's weird, actually. I mean, it's not. I'm, let me don't get me wrong. Champagne, delicious. Caviar, delicious. I would love to have both of those things at any time. And if you made me have them together, I would. But if I had a choice, I would have it with vodka. 
Um, and horseradish vodka, delicious, a great flavor profile, but really any really nice cold vodka is the best caviar pairing. And there's yes. vodka flights here. That's what I experienced last time, which was amazing. Um, I am kind of like a, I drink one type. So to kind of experience that, I just, I felt like when I came here, I was stepping into a world that you don't really get to visit very often. And it was, it was a really special kind of like memorable thing for me. So I'm just glad that we're, that we're sitting here and having this conversation. So, Thank you. Yeah. Any other uses of charcoal in the restaurant other than the skewers? Yeah. I mean, we have, we set, we have a mangal set up in the kitchen to use uh, for a variety of different purposes. We do skewers. We also um, do a lot of flatbreads on there. Um, so, well, there's something called the lipioshka, which is basically like literally like a hand smashed bread. It's sort of like naan. Um, so we, we grill those to order um, on our on our charcoal mangal. Um, and then um, there's also a bunch of different stuffed breads from Georgia. Um, we always have one example on our menu at any time. Um, and so at the moment, uh, we're doing one that has uh, lamb uh, in the center, like ground lamb. But uh, a lot of times there's We'll do them with bean as a filling, or the one that most folks know is something called khachapuri, which is a cheese bread. And there are a few different forms of those, but the one I think both most folks are familiar with is an ajari style, which is like an eye shape. Mm -hmm. And there's like a, a raw yolk uh, on top with a pat of butter that you stir all together before you eat it. Um, so we'll have that sometimes, but all those things we do um, using the charcoal as well. Is Kachka your only restaurant? And do you have plans for any more? Um, <laughs> good question. Uh, we, um, we had, um, a bar at our old location, uh, pre pandemic, our lease came up for renewal in the middle of all this. And we just decided to not renew, um, which was kind of a good thing in a way. Cause it felt like, um, we, I always felt like I couldn't devote enough attention to one of them. And I love, I love, you know, just really seeing this through, but, uh, now I feel like we're starting to get a little bit stir crazy stir crazy that's the wrong word um but a little bit more interested in sharing what we're doing with other folks would you recommend starting a business with your partner with your husband <laughs> with your wife did you guys were you in the kitchen together when the restaurant started no i'm he's a front of house person okay i'm a back house person so we have our we have our domains yes. but we've both so israel uh, my husband actually went to culinary school and um has worked has worked a little bit in kitchens and i we actually met because i was venturing into dining room work and i wanted to learn more about wine and so we worked together front of house at a restaurant so we both know just enough to annoy each other um you know get get in each other's way ask questions get ask annoying questions yeah um, which I think is really good, uh, ultimately, because we can hone each other a little bit, keep each other on our toes. Um, I think when either, I think that either when, um, there's only, there's like a partnership in the kitchen and there's no one in the dining room or where, um, there's just one person and they have to hire in the other part. I think that those can be more challenging. Um, I think it's nice to have each other to balance out and make sure that all, both parts, are sort of in, in check and in balance because that's, I think, the only way that a restaurant sings is, you know, when you really, truly appreciate both parts. Yes. Um, so, but, you know, not to say that it's all perfect and we, ne we never fight. Yeah, never. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really good. But, uh, of course, um, we always take work home with us and all of those good things. Yeah. Well, speaking of home, one question that we ask every guest are what are the five pantry staples that you have to have in your home at all times? Wow. Um, well, sunflower oil is okay. a must. And I mean like a really nice toasted sunflower oil. Um, absolutely. I'm trying to visualize my refrigerator and stuff right now. I will say one thing that we are, I don't know if it's good or bad. We hate having things sitting in our pantry. Um, I like, I hate a large pantry. Um, I think, I, I think people forget that things go bad. Yeah. Um, it drives me crazy when I go to my parents' house, sorry, mom. And there are like five unopened bags of walnuts that she got at Costco. And I'm like, mom, you know, those are going to go rancid before yeah. you use them. So I think I have like an allergy to that. And we actually intentionally like don't really stock anything. Everything's sort of moving and mobile. I think a really good 
chili of some sort, regardless of what that is. Right now, it's I'm a little bit spoiled because we got back from Uzbekistan and I brought like a kilo of this like del- I, can't, I don't know what it is. I need someone to tell me what varietal of chili this is that I got. But that's our current like flake that we use. It's nice. like so soft and delicious. Um, but something in that heat realm always. Um, I love Banyol's vinegar, mm-hmm. so I pretty much always have some of that. And the minute it runs out, it gets back on written on the board to have more. Um, you have to have eggs. Yeah, sure. I mean, have to have eggs. Um, that's three, four, 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 four. So four more. Oh, geez. Um, um, I guess I always have ice cream in my freezer. Love it. What kind? For ice cream. Is there a brand? I, <laughs> um, I really like McConnell's, um, which is from Santa Barbara. I they don't have any stabilizers, which some people might think creates like an icier sort of texture i actually really love that because it feels real to me i can really tell when there's a bunch of stabilizers in ice cream and it might at first seem for this is so luscious but it just feels fake uh, to me personally um and i specifically like their um uh peanut butter it's like double peanut butter chip or something like that um or when it's in season their peppermint stick <laughs> it's a great ice cream we're <laughs> depraved of that on the east coast but there's, there's, there's plenty some good, of delicious oh, ice yeah, cream no. on the East Coast. Yeah. But McConnell's is great. I want to go back to the first one you said, though, which is sunflower oil. Mm. And the, you're not talking about the mass-produced you know, sunflower. I've only had it a few times in my life where it actually tastes like almost like toasted or roasted mm-hmm. sunflower seeds. Where do you get that? Um, that is a... It's not a common item. It's a tricky question right now um, because I would say Ukraine, but that's a little bit difficult. Um, Georgia also. Uh, Both Georgia and Ukraine uh, produce delicious uh, sunflower oils. Um, They are um, like, you know, virgin pressed. They're so delicious. When I've only had it from Italy in my life where you open the bottle and it is the flavor yeah. of eating a roasted sunflower seed. It's essential. So, you know, people sort of, I think what's interesting is that olive oil, you know, at some point became this like cooking oil. Like it's like generic yep. sort of like, oh, that's what, that, what that's what I keep next to my stove. And I use that as my cooking oil, which can be, but it's also not necessarily for that and also isn't always appropriate. And so... Um, it has a really low smoke point. So like for yeah. searing... You know, I always am using a more neutral yeah. oil, like a grapeseed or something mm-hmm. that can withstand the cooking. Yeah. Um, so, but a refined sunflower oil that um, uh, is actually has a higher smoke point. And for me and the cuisine that I work with is is specific to, you know, the part of the world that I cook from. Sure. Um, and so I've found just by replacing a generic oil or olive oil for cooking with sunflower oil, it adds a... It, it feels like there's a little bit more like terroir to the cooking, but then having a finishing oil, like a toasted sunflower oil for me is so specific to what we do. And um, so for me, it's essential, but I think for folks who aren't familiar with it, um, it can really create a whole new flavor world because it's something that I think a lot of people aren't used to because they're so used to olive oil being the sort of finishing oil for salads. And I think if you try sunflower oil, it'll, blow your mind yeah Um, that's a great thought because mm -hmm. that the oil is that foundational flavor for so many types of cuisine what are the what is is butter used in the cooking is it and this obviously the seed oil yes a lot of butter i would say in general in general fluid dairy it's interesting because usually in places where they have a lot of dairy there's a cheese making culture as well um and you see that in france and italy and spain but for some reason, in the more northern climates, you don't see a very, st- which is interesting because you would think you would need to preserve better. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm not, you know, a culinary ethnologist or whatever, um, but I don't know why you don't see as much uh, aged cheese making. But you see so many fresh cheeses, so many different cultured, like kefir, um, sour cream, quark, or farmer's cheese, um, and different versions of those in very minor variations all throughout the former Soviet republics and then also going into the Nordic countries as well. Um, also all forms of yogurts. And so that, that, that almost, I tell people out of the time for what we do, um, sour cream is our, is, is a mother sauce, um, because that's how heavily sour cream is used. 
um, it just flavors everything. Yeah. Another question that just came to me now is you're a great supporter of our company here in Portland, Provista Specialty Foods. We don't have many products from that part of the world, from the former Soviet states. Was it a challenge for you to find the types of ingredients and foods that you were looking for? Like, how did that? How did That's you a do good that? Question, John. That is a good question, and yes, that is a cha- that is a huge challenge. There are there is a pretty large um, population of immigrants from the former Soviet Union um, here in the Portland metro area, and so there are a few distributors around that specialize in those imports. Right. A lot of them come from New York. Um, there are some that are direct imports, um, but mostly it's distributors. And um, but that being said, it does limit our options. A lot of the times they're buying um, sort of the the largest conglomerate companies' products, and so it can it can be sort of like shopping from just Conagra here or something like that. You know, there's right. not a lot of option. Um, but we're a scratch kitchen, so actually we don't we do need some things, but most of the products that these suppliers have, we actually don't need because we're just working with raw staple ingredients. Like, for example, sour cream, we make our own. So we just need really good cream, yep. um, which we can get anywhere. Um, I mean, maybe not anywhere, but in, in Oregon, we can get really sure. delicious cream. Um, and so um, there's a little bit less of an emphasis that we place on with those. But there, that does not to say that there aren't things like really delicious sunflower oil, um, which we get from a, a, a Georgian distributor in New York. Um, there's, uh, buckwheat's really important. That's actually a big challenge right now. This is a really sort of geeky fact. Um, buckwheat grown in the United States by and large is actually grown as a cover crop first, not for flavor or texture. And so when you buy, sorry, Bob's Red Mill, I love you guys, but when you buy Bob's Red Mill buckwheat, it is horrible. It's like, if that's all you've ever had for buckwheat, then you have not actually had buckwheat. Um, because it is not really, it was never grown for that purpose. It was grown as a cover crop first and they're like, oh, we'll sell it. We'll sell this grain as mm-hmm. a little, little extra. A byproduct. Yeah. yeah. So when you buy buckwheat from Russia, um, and these days that's pretty hard to come by and not necessarily something you want to purchase. Um, but that they do, that, that it's grown there for flavor and texture and it's grown in the Altai mountains and it's, it's a delicious product. Oh. So that's actually one what of the things. What are you using it for? Oh, the blini, I bet. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. For blini. Um, we, I mean, you just, you just cook the groats and use them, um, as a grain, like you would rice or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, we just, we've walked up, we've sort of stepped away from doing that right now because we can't get a good product. So, um, there, there's just not a lot of that in the U S. Um, so stop growing it for cover grab, make it delicious too. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of a challenge right now. So it's not, it's not to say that we're always successful in getting the products we need from, um, other distributors, but we make it work where we can. Yeah. Nice. Love it. Well, thank you so much for inviting us into your beautiful restaurant. This has been fascinating. I've learned Pleasure. a lot. And Andrew, do you have room at your table for me tomorrow night? Because I well, mean, like, it's really up to Bonnie. Oh, <laughs> she controls the book here, huh? It's like our. It's like an extension of our home. There's always room for more. Oh my god! Thank, thank you, you so much. much. It's been great. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. We are with Toby Roberts from Ton Charcoal, this amazing hardwood charcoal that, you know, we, we do so well with this product here in Portland at Provista Specialty Foods. Um, Bonnie from Kachka absolutely loves it. She loved it so much. That was the only ingredient she wanted mm-hmm. to talk to us about. Yeah, she said it was uh, so integral to her business that, you know, back years ago with like COVID and supply chain stuff when there was any lapses, that was the item that they panicked about most because it's vital to her restaurant. So welcome and Yeah. So nice to Thank have you here. So it's what is what is Ton Charcoal? Ton Charcoal is uh oh, first of all, so flattering, so honored. Bonnie is definitely a hero of mine. I love Kochka. So it's really nice to hear that it's an important important part of what they do. So great. Andrea had dinner there last I night. I did. It was amazing. Oh, yeah, so she didn't good. invite me. I need, I need to make it I back didn't. for sure. <laughs> what do I need to do to get invited to dinner with you? We're gonna go out tonight, John. Okay, there you go. Uh, yeah, so Tan Charcoal is a very uh, 
premium charcoal. Uh, what makes it special is that it's an extruded charcoal. You, a lot of people are familiar with a briquette, like a pillow style briquette or lump charcoal, uh, which are great products. But um, for a food service establishment, a restaurant, they're not great in many ways. They, they don't burn very long. They're kind of messy, especially the lump charcoal can be very messy. Lump charcoal can kind of pop and sputter and spark. And uh, that was a problem that we had in restaurants. Uh, commonly when Ton was launched, I was with Pak Pak restaurants at the time. We were using a lot of charcoal, but it was very messy. Uh, so we started looking for a better option and ended up uh, finding this and making this extruded charcoal, which is a charcoal that is, um, first you, you carbonize a wood. We use rambutan wood, which is a fruit very common in Southeast Asia. It's an orchard scrap, uh, which is nice because uh, it's a sustainable product. We're and you're holding a piece of it. It's almost like a, a mini log. Yeah. Almost like the Japanese binchothan. Yeah, is that very, what it's called? Very, yeah. very similar in form and function to binchothan. Um, so it's the wood is carbonized and then it's extruded through a mold under very, very high pressure. So the charcoal is very dense and it burns for a very long time, like four and a half, five hours, which is perfect in a food service setting when, you know, you may start your fire at 10 in the morning to start doing some prep and burn until end of service at 11 p.m. So the longer this stuff burns, the less you have to feed it, the less you have to fuss with it. And uh, that is really the main benefit. It's it's much easier to use, more consistent. What about consistent. the shape? I yeah. It's very different from, I don't think, if, if a, someone was looking at it, I don't think they would know that it's charcoal. So yeah. how did you guys come up with that shape? We call it a log shape for, for lack of a better way to communicate it. Sometimes people think we're talking about a fire log, but the shape comes from the extrusion process. It's like I said, it's forced through a mold in a continuous process and then cut to length, however long you want to cut it. Uh, and it's got a hole through the middle, which helps with uh, airflow circulation helps keep everything really consistent. The temperature is, is really nice. It burns very hot, but it also burns very consistently hot, which is important again in a restaurant. Uh, like a lump charcoal will kind of spike in heat at the beginning. Burns really hot, it's nice, but it loses heat fairly quickly. Ton charcoal will get very high and then kind of plateau at a high temp for hours. Do you get like, you know, it's kind of maintained even heat for how about how many hours? Four and a half, five hours. Oh, wow. Often it'll sort of shrink as it's burning, mm -hmm. but it'll. The nice thing is that you'll still get that heat. You'll still get a uh, thousand to eleven hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Does it give off a lot of smoke? Doesn't. No. The only smoke really that you'll see with the extruded ton charcoal is drippings uh from whatever it is you're cooking so no smoke no yeah. real really no flame no sparks just clean even high temperature you touched upon the sustainability piece and you kind of went quickly but i think mm -hmm. it's important to talk to talk about um you know you you've chosen the rambutan i guess to help with sustainability can you talk into that a little bit more yeah. and and what's out there and you know what uh, chef should be looking for? Absolutely. We use rambutan. It is a hardwood. It's a fruit wood. So hardwoods are always going to make better charcoal. Uh, it is orchard scraps, so trimmings from rambutan trees that happen during the commercial process of, of harvesting or trimming. And uh, so other charcoals, we... For a long time, we're using like mangrove, which is important for like deltas and and sort of uh, it's an important riparian uh, tree species, but it also makes very good charcoal. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> we wanted to avoid a product that is very important to certain habitats, and this is it's the perfect balance because. They have to do something with this with this wood scrap. They likely would just burn it 
if it wasn't made into a value-added product. That's awesome. So, so the bad production of charcoals around the world is happening from mangroves and and it's a taken mangrove away from... or white oak, which is a slow-growing uh, tree. There's they make charcoal out of a lot of different woods, and it varies really in in how sustainable or how impactful that is on the environment. We also want to work with tamarind, which is another sort of global uh, harvested product. And so as we consider products, we consider the environmental impact and, and make sure that it's it's not forested. It's it's more of a byproduct. You're not hurting the earth in, in yeah. creating this product. I love that this product came out of the Pock Pock restaurant yeah. empire, so to speak, um, that it's made by chefs, for chefs. What year did you guys launch this? It's been a while. We started in 2014. Uh, again, we were using a lot of charcoal. At Pock Pock restaurants uh, use charcoal in many, many different ways, uh, You know, from our commissary in prepping items all the, all the way through service. So charcoal touched so much of the food that came out of Pock Pock. And uh, yeah, 2014, we tried a lot of charcoals. We wanted it to come from Thailand. We wanted to support a Thai business and work with the Thai manufacturer. Um, the, you know, lots of varied quality samples came from there. And we landed on this because, again, it was just the best charcoal that we could find and it had this really awesome sustainability component that was really important to us. So for a restaurant that wants to buy this product, what size formats does it come in? The food service standard pack is 10 kilograms or 22 pounds and the logs themselves are about two inches in diameter and six inches long. So they fit nicely in Conroe grill, which is a very common grill for restaurants to be using those kind of fire brick ceramic grills that fit nicely and surreptitiously under your hoods. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a sort of more of a retail pack, which is still great for food service, but it comes in a five pound box and it is two inches in diameter by four inches long. So a little bit shorter. Yeah, I mean, this is a great item for restaurants that are using, you know, if they're using hardwoods and, and charcoals, uh, it's a great thing to convert to. Um, as you mentioned, those bags, I saw the bags here in our Provista warehouse. They're just, you don't have to stack anything up. They yeah. come ready to go. Yeah. Um, and I feel like wood-fired stuff, you know, wood-fired restaurants, it's there, more and more kitchens are going to the natural, you know, rather than using gas. And, From a sustainability yeah. uh, perspective. Absolutely. So I'm yeah. sure you guys are seeing a lot of growth with that. A lot of growth. Yeah. You know, food cooked over live fire just tastes better. It's just a fact. <laughs> so, Couldn't agree yeah. more. Yeah. Um, what are you we, holding? I'm holding a new product for us. So 2014, we've been running this and offering this extruded log charcoal. Just in the last couple of months, we have introduced a really amazing lump charcoal, which is, again, maybe what people are more familiar with, um, kind of a workhorse charcoal, not, um, you know, it, it won't burn for five hours, but it is a mix of uh, oak and mesquite uh, woods. Um, we take this to a higher carbon content than a lot of the lump charcoals that you'll find on the market. So it doesn't spark and pop and sputter quite as much as, as some of the other items that you'd find. It almost and, looks like a burnt log. Like it doesn't look like a typical yeah, lump. It's that very you, natural you looking. Some of them, some of the lumps are actually like full rounds of a branch and our manufacturer works with the government to identify tree specific trees, like tree by tree that um, that should be uh, for, used for for charcoal based on you know fire safety or uh, safety otherwise or um, a strategic plan. And where is have. that produced? This is produced in uh, northern Mexico in Nuevo León, and yeah, that's our new product. We're really excited about it. 
you, you all have helped us uh, get it into new seasons. So it's it's available at new seasons. And Great. we're starting to also get it to chefs and restaurants because uh, a lot of wood-fired restaurants, like if they are using hordes of wood, really nice flavor from the wood, but also a little bit of a pain in the butt and, and sort of expensive using only wood. So this charcoal is a really nice complement for chefs and restaurants out there that are using wood. You can reduce your wood use by 50% or so. Here's a confession. I have I have a gas grill at home, and I do grill a lot. I did a dinner party a couple of weeks ago, and we did use the tan hardwood charcoal. Was this the lamb? Yes, and I have to tell you, there is no comparison and even though having a gas grill in your backyard is convenient to you know push the button and have it heat up right away, I have made the decision that I am going to get a charcoal fired grill in wow. my backyard now. Excellent, decision. because nice. it, it there is just it, I'm sorry, you can't there's, compare. There's nothing. I will, I will really say can. that a a gas grill has a place, and its place is in lighting charcoal. You put your charcoal chimney on your gas grill. And it'll light it right up. <laughs> Great. That's good for me to know. I was actually going to ask you if there was a way that I could like put this charcoal on top of the Don't they sometimes the do that? Is. Like you can lay out charcoal. Like is under, that okay? I, I think so. Uh, especially the extruder. You can put it right on a six yeah. burner. That's how, that's how we do oh. it at, at Gato mm-hmm. Gato. We oh, just oh. will take, you know, four of the burners, turn them on high with like a cross stack of of the extruded log charcoal, and then you're oh, you're ready to go. I didn't know that. Yeah, but yeah. like, I think you need a specific hood system. Is that correct? Well, I'm talking about right. like home a, use. Uh, yeah, I that don't is... want you to smoke out your house, John. No, I'm saying outside, outside, okay, okay, outside. Okay. outside. <laughs> well, this has been amazing. Yeah. Um, Tan charcoal, hardwood charcoal, and then also this new lump charcoal. Beautiful product. I had some chicken skewers that you guys were grilling Thai style a few minutes Amazing. ago. Oof, yes. They're so good. Chef Tom from Gato Gato is out there. So Gato Gato in up. Portland. Yeah. Very tasty. Well, this is a great product from Portland, Oregon. Um, thank you so much for working with us here at Provista Specialty Foods. Uh, we're so happy to have a product like this. Thanks, Joey. Mine. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. You can watch this episode on YouTube and see more behind-the-scenes content by following us. Find us on Instagram by searching at Ingredient Insiders.